Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sandra Morden, Acting Associate University Librarian at Queen's University Library. On behalf of the library, I would like to welcome you to the Fireplace series. In other times, we would be enjoying the space and the warmth of the fireplaces in the Alan G. Green Fireplace Reading Room in Stauffer Library, where this conversation is taking place. To begin, I would like to acknowledge that our usual meeting place and Queen's University are situated on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. By acknowledging this traditional territory, we recognize its longer history and its significance for the Indigenous people who lived and continue to live upon it. We are grateful to live, work, and learn on these lands, and I think we've gained even more appreciation during recent times. We're grateful also to connect with each other in meaningful ways such as this conversation today. As we have all navigated so many changes and uncertainties over the last months, and we contemplate the future, it seems important to take a step back and gain perspective on our experience with insights from our speakers today. We look forward to the next time we're able to gather together in the fireplace reading room. For now, we can picture the conversation that will take place in that room and feel the warmth. Thanks for joining us today and welcome. Thank you, Sandra, and a warm welcome to our guests today. Elizabeth Hansen from the Faculty of Arts and Science, and Elspeth Murray from the Smith School of Business. My name is Laura Jean Cameron. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning, and along with Alison Moorhead from Art History, I co-direct the Fireplace series. Very broadly, in these strange times, our current series theme is time itself. Time as lived experience, as a measure of productivity and reproductivity, as socially and culturally constructed, a structure to be transcended for better futures, and as this time, and how to best address it. A lot of people have been helping with the trickier-than-usual organization. Thanks to Vicki Arnold and her team, and a special thanks to Claudia Hertenfelder, a geography PhD student whose assistance and adaptive creativity is invaluable to the series. Also to Dr. Matt Rogalski from the Dan School, who is acting as our recording engineer. A heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, the Faculty of Arts and Science and the Queen's University Library, who continue to support this series during a time that remains disrupted by the global pandemic. This is a moment when a lot of researchers, faculty members, students, and staff are experiencing the effects of exhaustion, frustration, and alienation in our daily work lives online. And then there are those people who, by the nature of their jobs, take new risks in person. Thanks to the on-duty security guard who led us into Queen Stouffer Library this morning, as well as the facility manager, Brendan Hume. We are here because the library has kindly offered our faculty guests the presently novel for them, 
opportunity to meet offline, off Skype, off Zoom, off Teams, and in person. In fact, four of us are back in our usual place, the fireplace room, where we sit, sort of together, enjoying the possibilities of socially distanced presence in real time. What we don't have here with us is an audience, as gathering on campus in larger groups is not permitted. So questions from audience members, students, colleagues, and community members, whom we imagine would have gathered if they had been allowed to do so, were prepared and gathered earlier this week and will be posed to Elizabeth and Elspeth following their chat. Although today is November 20th, 2020, we'll be releasing this podcast in December, in time for holiday listening. Thus today, while we enjoy the grounding experience of a familiar and beloved place at Queen's, time seems out of joint. To help us think about the temporality of university life and its relationship to what appears to be sudden change, we have with us two leading voices from the Queen's community. Elizabeth Hansen is professor of the Department of English Language and Literature at Queen's University. She also is the president of the Queen's University Faculty Association. Elizabeth is interested in English Renaissance drama, humanism, as well as the political economy of the modern-day university. Elspeth Murray has served as the Associate Dean, MBA, and Master's program since 2012, and has been a Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at Smith's School of Business since 1996. As an integral part of her work in the strategy and new venture fields, Elspeth specializes in the management of change. Elizabeth, Elspeth, a warm welcome to you both. Now, Alison Moorhead, who is the co-director of the series, can't be with us today. And to begin your chat, I'd like to offer you her question. How does time in the university feel to you right now? How does it feel different? The same? How might notions of downtime or off time or time off have changed for you? I will take a shot at it. So this is Elspeth here, and then I will turn things over to Elizabeth. I thought it was such a great question, and um, I think the word that immediately popped into my head was sort of dislocation. And this whole notion of temporality made me also think that, um, you know, the, the past, the present, and the future sometimes operates in the space of a week, from Monday to Friday, which uh, is kind of crazy to think about at the moment. So I feel at the moment that, uh, that time doesn't actually have a whole lot of meaning, or at least the meaning that it used to have. Yeah, I'd agree with that, that time, uh, that, that time does not present itself to me in the way that it used to. I mean, it has, unfortunately, too much meaning for me in some personal ways, because I feel like I'm getting old and I narcissistically can focus on that in ways that I couldn't before, because I was busy, but what has ha happened is 
that time has gotten thin. That before, you know, time isn't really a thing. It's just a, it's a conceptual organization principle for change that happens in the objective world, in nature, in, you know, in our own minds. And less happens now in that, spatial, physical way than it used to. Because to go from one meeting to another, I just do the same motion of clicking on Zoom. I don't walk from one building to another where I might encounter somebody by chance, have a conversation, set up a coffee, the the kind of fullness of time, you know, which is a nice expression that suggests that in the course of time things happen and change is diminished because we don't uh, you know we don't move through space in the way that we did before so I really like the time has become thin yeah that's a great way yeah and then, and, then, and then it seems to go fast because it's it's such a, you know, it's such a nothing. Yeah. Know. Maybe we'll reinvent the concept of the 24-hour day. What do you think? Well, what is the concept of the 24-hour day? Precisely. I, I, I don't somebody's, know. Somebody's view of how we should think about time. Yeah. But that I, may be a wormhole we shouldn't go down yet. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was another part to the question, which was, um, how does it feel different? Mm -hmm. So I spent some time reflecting on that, obviously to try and get my ducks in a row before doing something like this. Um, and it reminded me uh, of sort of, I, I think, a, a larger question, which is related to the kind of the, the, the rhythm of time. And when we were originally preparing for this, that was something that kind of came up in that in that discussion. Um, but where, where I'm going with this is, is the concept of, of this thing that we call um, sort of a steady state. You know, that there is a, now we all feel dislocated and time is thin and things are out of whack because it's not like it used to be, you know, whatever, whatever that looked like. And now we now we, we don't have that, and people always talk about, and I, I hate the phrase, you know, what is the new normal? But, but maybe in this whole discussion of time and past, present, and future, we shouldn't be really looking for a new normal. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the wrong quest at the moment. And we seem to be in such a rush to kind of figure out what that is. Uh, and, and really, maybe we should just park that to the side and kind of enjoy the, the moment, if you will, where many things are, are up in the air. Yeah. I, I, I find the moment very interesting right now. That is, like, you know, I found this year uh, one that I have been glad to live through because it's so unusual and interesting. But, you know, I think that question about is this the new normal, it comes from a political intuition that I detected in some of Laura's students' questions that 
that is an accurate intuition in my view, which is that all sorts of new possibilities have emerged that different interested actors want to seize on. And that always happens in periods of disruption. You know, if we think about the opportunities for women that emerged in both of the great wars of the 20th century and then the need, you know, the social response to that, particularly after the Second World War, to close doors that had opened. None of that is something that just happens. It's that there's, that there's social struggle and conflict. And, and so I think the apprehension about the new normal is a question about, you know, are there segments of society in whose interests seizing on and normalizing certain aspects of this situation. Sorry, I lost the grammar of that sentence. Are there such segments in the society? What are the aspects of the situation that align with different interests? You know, that there's a kind of suspended but implicit social struggle. Yes, and it's uh, who's new normal. Right. And who reigns supreme and right. quotes that definition of the new normal. But I find it really interesting that a lot of the questions were associated with, you know, what does this mean for the future? You know, what does this all entail? As if we should be quick to define that new normal, as opposed to being very comfortable for not just a moment in time with the fact that there's much in flux and that that's okay. Because um, I, I think when you, you look at, at disruptions and certainly, you know, in the, in the business world and you look at, at corporations and companies, you sort of see these episodic events in time where you go from one state to the next state and there's always the quest for the next state. And what I see in a lot of organizations now is that that's really the wrong quest because there's so much uncertainty and nobody actually knows. You know, what should we do in the future? Well, you can make it up, but you have no data, you have no evidence, you don't know beforehand whether or not it's going to work. So I, I, I That must be really hard for businesses because that's the game that they well, have well, to play, exactly, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so the, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about... Um, not undertaking that quest, but then what else does that mean? Maybe it is, and you're the historian, not me, um, and, and Laura Jean is the uh, historian and not me, but um, when, um, I just lost, completely lost my train well, of thought. Well, I'm just imagining if I were in oh, I a I business, saying. I'd be afraid somebody was going to eat my lunch if I don't call it right. Well, exactly, but you you... You can only know if you're right in hindsight. Yeah. So what you see, back to my train of thought, what you see happening now in the organizations that seem to be just rolling with it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a time for great experimentation because you cannot know in advance what will work. All you can do is try a bunch of different things. And as time progresses, it becomes more and more obvious 
which of the experiments were actually going to be fruitful and which were a complete and utter waste of time in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I, I just, I see that in a lot of organizations now and those who are really struggling, they, they don't get the experimentation piece right. You know, there, there are, are big bets placed or dogma right. that wins right. the day right. by certain constituents. And before you know it, you know, you're there in this new place. And it's kind of like, well, how did we get there? Yeah, that, 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 that's interesting because exper- true experimentation is a very humble process. You have to appreciate that you don't know what you're doing. And that does not, uh, that doesn't sell if you're a consultant. Like you don't come in and say, I don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. We're just going to stay in a state of uh, alert observation here. Like I don't, it just isn't something you put on your business (laughs) cards. No, no, but it's so, it's so, uh, it's so interesting because you actually, uh, I would just use one example because I think there, and I don't want to talk about, we're here to talk about university life, but I think there's a, you know, a direct corollary here, but you look at huge organizations like the Microsofts of the world and you have a new leader in charge, Satya Nadella, and he is less about, you know, hope you tell me the right answer, we'll fund it and get it done. He's all about experimentation. And he's um, kind of taken the work of uh, Carol Dweck to heart, where she talks about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And I love the phrase that he uses because he said Microsoft wasn't performing well because the the requirement internally was to know everything. You needed to be an expert. You needed to have the answer. You needed to have T's crossed and I's dotted before you did anything. And there was no tolerance for things not working out. Incredibly ruthless culture. So Nadella comes in and says, well, that's obviously not been working. So why don't we try something else? So, um, you know, Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset is kind of the power of not yet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we will test, we will learn, and we will eventually get there. But reframed this whole notion of failure and things not working. So I, I wonder if in our world, which sounds bizarre given what we're supposed to be doing is the day job, if we need more time and attention on the role that experimentation plays in what we do and how we do it versus looking for the the model somewhere else that we we fit into this so-called new normal well so i'm you know i i I, i'm fascinated by what you're saying it's like a a new idea which is um a nice thing to take home my experience of being a university teacher is that it's always about failing. Every single day, I just fail all day long and take what illuminations I can from it. And that as a teacher, all that I am ever doing is casting my bread upon the waters, which means that like most of your bread is just soggy and not usable. But I've found um, that my you know, that my sense of the lived experience of being a teacher, which is just 
learning to be able to tolerate your ongoing failure and uncertainty about what you're doing is completely institutionally unacceptable. And, you know, I, I apologize to people that have heard me yap about this and, you know, sing the song, but, you know, we have a word that has currency on campus that completely defies the wisdom of what you just described, which is outcomes. You know, where that crazy regime came from that... Uh, that constructs the teacher as possessed of the ability to state the outcomes of their teaching is, you know, it's so offensive to the lived reality of teaching as prolonged optimistic failure, you know. Like, it's optimistic because every single day, like, you know, 31 years into teaching, and I still get this little goose in September. It's going to be better this year. You know, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to convey why dangling participles matter and what Seneca provided to Shakespeare. And, you know, like I got my whole laundry list of the things that I'm going to win with, and I never do. And one of the reasons I never do is because my students are different people from myself. And that it's a relationship. And in relationships, you're always just, you know, approximating what your, your other might be. And they're doing the same. And that kind of, you know, recognition of the complexity of what we're doing just it's just not got an institutional language anymore. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, I, I agree completely. And if you actually um, indulge me one more time, I'll talk about Microsoft because um, they were completely driven by new products, uh, et, cetera, et cetera. And it was so bad that they would fire every year, the bottom 10% performers. Imagine the impact <sighs> yeah. that would have on anybody trying anything new. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that, would, that's, that, that would lock you down. Yeah, it was, and that's, that's why their eventual business results were so lousy for so long, um, because they were actually focusing people on the wrong thing. So you all of a sudden change to the power of something like not yet. And what you do is you, you encourage people to spend time on getting the journey right. And you place a bet on the fact that if you get that part right, great things will happen. As opposed to starting with the, this must, must happen. You know, you must get X percent more market share. Uh, so it's really interesting what, what you said. And, you know, back to kind of our world, which is um, like, are we actually incented? Hopefully that's a good word, given an English professor. <laughs> incentivized? Uh, incentivized never... is better. Is it better? Uh, okay, well, there we go. Moved I... would work too. Moved, yes. Exactly. <laughs> moved, that's even better. Um, 
So you learn something new every day. <laughs> um, but you have to encourage or yeah. you know move people along to actually do do the right things. So so in um, in what I would argue is really great organizations back to time that exist over a long period of time, they get that incentive structure right, all the way down to things like, and um, I love the phrase non-hasty time in one of the articles you and I read, mm-hmm. but, but um, ensuring employees spend um, 10 to 15%, depending on whether it's kind of 3M or Google, doing something that has nothing to do with your day job, yeah, not driven by a particular outcome, but placing a bet on the fact that in that time, great things will happen. And I think it's the serendipitous nature of, of invention and moving anything forward. So, uh, yeah, I hear you on the whole outcomes piece. Um, when did that become the, the be-all, end-all? You, you just used another word that I uh, was um, turning over when I was thinking about what had happened to time, which was serendipity. That that's you know that that's something that has uh, that characterizes this thinness of time. Right, is how much serendipity we've lost by being spatially confined yes i i mean i'm i think you know there are there are um there's silver lining in all of this pandemic stuff um because i think the research questions for all of us you know we'll never get to them in in our lifetimes Mm. um but this this whole notion of how serendipity has been affected I think is an interesting question. It's just not the same if you're on a Zoom call hoping for that aha moment. Mm-hmm. It, it might happen, but I suspect not because we're human beings and the way in which we interact and build off of ideas is, is well, very there different. Are the corridor conversations yep. and the little exchange in the bathroom and you know, just all the ancillary uh, yeah. shoulder rubbing and yep, exactly. so forth. Yeah, well, certainly in the, um, you know, in the literature around uh, great moments that turn into something impactful, it would suggest that having having this non-hasty time to actually just sit back and think um, is a key element. Mm-hmm. You know, it also reminded me back to kind of the 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 environment in, in which we live in this, um, the article I was reading about the UK experience and sort of the drive towards, you know, outcomes and projects and short-termism uh, and how, how much of a, a challenge uh, that actually is. And, you know, whether or not we do need to think differently about how, how we create that, that environment where more of that can actually occur. I don't think we do that well enough, even though it's supposed to be part of our job in the big research bucket. Um, but where I was really going with this is, you know, when did it become a bad thing to be caught sitting at your desk daydre- daydreaming? Well, when, when you uh, became construed as a, a rent seeker, 
you know, it's not, um, it's not just some idea we got in our heads that that language of outcomes and accountability and, and the uh, rise of practitioners of enforcement of those things c comes about when you have political incentives to, um, to foment suspicion of anyone who receives tax money. You know, that, that is, I think there's a really clear politics to it, which is that we're downstream from taxation. And while, from my perspective, taxation is a performance of social virtue, it's a recognition that if property is not theft, it's arbitrary, and that most of the wealth we produce should be collectively owned and distributed for the common good. But, you know, who's going to get elected on that? And it's been, um, you know, it's been a kind of crescendo, my a rising crescendo, my entire adult life. And once you, but once you've really ginned that up in the public mind, then what you're going to need is a kind of ongoing. I mean, this is not a very original thought here, but you need an ongoing demonstration that uh, these expensive institutions have delivered the goods. And the problem that we face is, well, we know what the real good good is, which is something so open-ended and uncertain and future-oriented that we can't specify it. So... The, and that's now become a bad thing. Yes. That we so the, can't specify so, 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 so the virtue of the institution is a unspeakable political liability for those that mediate between the producers of wealth and us. And, you know, like, I, I, I think it's political. It's not just some dumb idea that we've seized a hold of and you know poor poor microsoft you know on the one hand you can see that this is a terrible way to manage a company that if you fire the bottom 10% every year you're going to you know get something more rigid than the prussian military but the the in, incentive is clear which is that they're they they're Microsoft is a public corporation, right? They're answerable to their stockholders. They've got to make money. And so they want to demonstrate that they can do that. So it's a contradiction that they yeah. embody. What, what I, I mean, I'm just fascinated by, by this conversation. And, and, you know, and again, I wanted to kind of bring it back to change. This short-termism is a huge killer of change because all you do is, and, and particularly transformational change, because all you do is you tinker at the edges and you tend to put in short-term fixes, but you've really lost sight of the, the forest for the trees. And when, you know, when I always talk about these 
you know, curves of performance. And every now and again, you have to jump from one curve to the next as, as things change. And, uh, and many organizations can actually make that that shift, you know, they get stuck on one curve and all they do is incrementally work themselves down the curve as opposed to spending the effort actually thinking about what the next curve is. And we, we, had, we had a really interesting question about that. Like what, what does the next curve for a university actually look like? And the word that we both loved was conserve, right? Yeah. Like, like what, what needs to be kept and then what doesn't and and or what new things do do we need to add so 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 you know to be really pokey why is transformational change a good thing it isn't a good thing in and of itself yeah i mean that's you know, you know it somebody... seems to me like change you you change things when you have information that something needs to be changed. 100%. And that, that's, that's really part of the art, which is how do you know? Yeah. Like, what are the signals? And then you were talking about politics. There's always politics around the signals. People will interpret the data through their own lens. And it will either be a reason to change or a reason not to change. And I, I have found it fascinating in the work that I've done on on change is that answering the why do we need to change question um, is much harder than you think. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's, there are some things that you know for sure, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can never know, and there, therein lies the, the dilemma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, somebody blowing in and saying, hey, we need to redo everything without answering the why question, it's not going to work. Or in whose interests are in, these changes? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, change is such a, such a funny word because, like, you know, I, I, I grew up in the 60s and early 70s and change just meant progressive change. The times they are changing, exactly. you know. If you... I was listening to Bob Dylan on my drive in. It's one of Barack Obama's uh, you know, apparently playlist and songs. And isn't that the song that ended up being the BMO one? Was it BMO that I one, don't know. one of the banks got yeah. got a hold of one of the Dylan songs? But mostly in my adult life, change has been a neoliberal mantra. You know that it's it's not and. It, it just has a vacuity to it that I think we really need to attend to because, uh, you know, like if I hear one more person say, well, change is hard. You know, when what you're being asked to do is to use some new software that you have to watch a YouTube video to know how to operate, to do something that you used to be able to do with pen and paper using skills you had from second grade. And to me, that looks like a loss of efficiency. You know, if I already knew how to do something and I am placed in a situation where I now don't know how to do it, then, and it's a, it's a merely administrative task or, you know, a, mm -hmm. a maintenance thing of some kind, that's a loss of efficiency. But it is a change. 
And so it's, you know, it's kind of ideologically uh, recruitable for a vision of a, a, you know, a flexible, nimble, that's a new yeah, that's a big word these buzzword. days. Buzzword. Um, Future-oriented organization. Singing. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it goes, I mean, it goes back to it goes back to the 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 why and the what of all of this. But I actually um, wanted to pick up on a couple things. So we need to come up with a better word than change. Because now all change stands for is bad stuff. Yeah. There's no progressive make things better. The, the, you the, say to people in an organization, hey, like we have to change in a big way. The immediate reaction is, this is not going to be good. Right. So I think that's an interesting question too, which is, and again, I think back to time, we've always talked about change as being episodic events. Mm-hmm. Less so, like every now and again, we have to have big change. And then we back to the whole new normal thing. But I think the other thing, um, when we talk about changing individual behaviors, it is hard to do that. And uh, I'm, I'm really interested in this research around um, muscle memory and the cognitive load associated mm-hmm. with even simple changes. And there was a great study done looking at uh, violinists pros versus amateurs. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they actually, you know, scanned the brain. Um, They asked um, both musicians to play exactly the same piece. So you had the professional and then you had the amateur. So for the professional, the brain did not light up because it's routinized, right? It's like a pattern. It's easy to do. Mm -hmm, You know mm -hmm, how to do mm -hmm, it. So mm -hmm. no big deal. But for the amateur, you could see, you know, many parts of the brain. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's this back to this moment in time. A lot of the things that we did and the way we did them um, that were so easy and automatic, that's no longer the case. So back to time and how are you feeling? Like, I feel tired most of the time yeah. <laughs> because, because, yeah, I didn't know Zoom. Um, I didn't know Microsoft Teams or or D2L or making videos on Camtasia or any of, of that. Like, I'm exhausted. Everybody. No, seriously. For those that are listening, everybody in the room except me laughed about Camtasia because I haven't had to use it. No, but I'm thinking about Matt here, who's like the pro in all of this editing. And I remember recording my first video and like looking at that screen thinking, I haven't got a hope in doing this. (laughs) And it's gonna take me 10 hours to cut out the first lousy bit of my recording. Who wants to do that? I think that this is what you're talking about. Like, how did that become? but, but, But you know, there's also a question there, which is, and why did you think that you should do that. Yes. You know, that that was actually, I, I thought, a really, some, something that deserves a lot of um, respectful, critical scrutiny about what we did is that I think the university was commendably, in some ways, very concerned that remote teaching go well. And 
that, that, you know, like, I really do think that's commendable. It involves care for the students and, and provision of assistance for the faculty. But part of what got lost there is the acceptance, uh, <laughs> the acceptance of sucking, right? You know, this is really not a wonderful moment in social experiment, even though social experiment is happening. It's a catastrophe. And it's not happy. And our expectation that we don't want to let it go to waste, or that we can't just say to ourselves and to our students, this is going to be a really disappointing year pedagogically because the professors are not going to be able to do what they otherwise would be able to and the students are not going to be able to learn what they otherwise would. This is reality. This is what happens to us. And we can mitigate it somewhat, but let's not have a nervous breakdown in the yeah. process. And now, you know, when you read like the ACES report from the under, uh, uh, arts and science undergraduate students produced a very interesting and thoughtful report on their experiences, what I detect from Laura's students' questions, what I hear from the faculty is people are really suffering from the inability to have said, I'm just going to lower my expectations about this situation and admit that, man, this just sucks. Yeah, well, and, 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 and this, this thought, and, and I've moved a bunch of my courses, you know, into remote learning format, but this is what really provoked my thought around experimentation, which is like, let's just acknowledge it is a grand experiment. But, at the but, moment. but also, let's just like not get excited about it and experiment till we drop. Yes. Y you know, like in, in our earlier discussion about experimentation, part of what we were talking about is the passivity that experiment oddly might require. You know, one, spe you know, the, the specific form of passivity is the tolerance of failure, right? Um, but we, you know, but, but nevertheless, in science, you design an experiment. You, you are expected to make it a good experiment, not a sloppy one. Exactly. Or, you know. With some hypotheses in advance yeah, and all that there, good there, stuff. There, yeah. there's, it, it, it's not tr truly passive. But there is something deserving reflective critical attention about a culture that treats a pandemic as an experiment. You know, that I just kind of don't think that's how they thought about the Black Death. And I um, don't think that's what the indigenous peoples of South America thought as they died from the illnesses that the Spanish brought. You know, that there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of culturally specific refusal to admit 
the, that it's the, just a terrible time. Yeah, and, and, and that one of the things that that means for us is that we have to accept that things that dim, diminish us happen. I wonder if this would be a good moment to bring in some of the questions from our audience. Uh, time has been flying. Your discussion so far has been endlessly fascinating. Um, I've got, I, I really have about 100 questions before me. I, 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 truly. Um, I'm going to try and... I think you know. that's a good sign, don't you? <laughs> um, let, let's start with one from Professor Paul Grogan from the Department of Biology. He asks... Ultimately, everything is impermanent, and the impacts of COVID, for example, are a stark and dramatic reminder of that. Nevertheless, looking ahead over the next few decades, what core features of a university such as Queen's do you consider most important to focus on conserving? I'm so biased in my answer to this question because I did my undergrad and my MBA here at Queen's, so I sort of computer science and math actually, way, way before the current tech. Um, so, so I will try and kind of park that by the side and go back to what I've learned from teaching some courses during this moment in time, because it, it does cause one to reflect on what, what is it that we're really doing that's unique. And uh, so a couple of things that I've learned, and these are things that I think are worth conserving. Uh, I, think the, um, I think the relationships that we develop, I'll talk about teaching, the relationships that we develop with students uh, is a really critical piece of what we do. And I'm reminded of one student in one class who said flat out, I really miss being in the classroom because I always counted on that as positive affirmation that I was on the right track and that I was in the right place. So I don't know, can we do that in other ways? But I, I found that really interesting. Uh, so somehow we have, to, we have to get the relationship piece right going forward because the acquisition of knowledge uh, is easily done elsewhere, especially these days, as as everyone has moved material online for free. It doesn't really matter what the what the the subject area is or what the domain is. So I think that that's one thing we have to figure out. Um, I think the other thing that that is interesting, maybe just talk about a, a faculty role, and this this ties in with the the basics are now available for free elsewhere. In, in almost any topic area. So what is it that we do here that's different from the basic acquisition of knowledge? So it's the sense-making, the curation, pay attention to this, don't pay attention to that. But, but maybe back to the whole notion of knowledge creation and research and, and the truly new stuff, it's almost, you know, going way back in time to universities that at their core, that's what they were all about. Anyways, those are my initial thoughts mm -hmm. to the answer to the question. But I think we have to get that, that, that conservation piece right when we look at the results mm -hmm. of the online education experiment we're all part yeah. of. Yeah. 
Oh, you may have to cut me off in answering the question. First, I, I completely agree with, with Elspeth that it's the relational aspect of the universities that is the thing we want to hang on to. But I think that we need to be really aware of how hard it has been to do that over the last 20 years at least, and that there is nothing in our current moment except the anguished cries of students that said, if it, even if I just have to see them on Zoom, I want to see the people in my classes and my profs. Like that, yeah, that absolutely. Uh, assertion on the part of the students that this synchronous encounter actually mattered to them. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to resist my temptation to start trotting out statistics about the university and the way that and the history uh, of the last 20 years that have been all about undermining that relational thing. Like to me, the core of that relation is the relation of the professors to a group of students that is small enough that those students can form their relationships with one another in relation to the professor. And that's, you know, that's about an institutional number. That's about the faculty-student ratio. And we've, you know, we've gone since the mid-90s from roughly 1 to 19 to 1 to 30, 29, 30. That's about where we are. And the whole online thing of the last 15 years has been about worsening the ratio, finding ways that you can deliver deliver more stuff to more students with a lower labor cost. And so all, all, all that I want to say in this context is, yeah, that's what we want to hang on to, but gird your loins, folks, because that's a battle, because it's about money and labor costs in the... In, in the university, like, you know, th th that's the core piece. But the other thing that I thought was really important about Paul's question was just the introduction of the word conserving and conservation. Because as Elspeth and I were talking about before we started the podcast, notice that that word is not a buzzword at the university. We have, uh, you know... <laughs> Like, you know, there are more buzzwords around this place than, you know, there are mayflies on the, on the lakeshore in spring, but conservation is not one of them. You know, the idea that conservation is as much, a, a cultural conservation is as much a purpose of the university as innovation. Where is our center for conservation? You know, conservation is part of what I understand as core to my discipline, which is that, you know, before I can get my students to do new, fun, and fascinating things with the literature of the English Renaissance, I have to acquaint them with it, 
which is an act of conservation. You know, it's founded on the editorial work, the, you know, this process of preserving texts, and its first step is to say it matters that you know what has already been in the world. And that's just not been a big thing in the mission statements. Yeah, interesting. Here. Could I just say one more thing, kind of back Poor to more. the, the um, you know, the, the student-faculty ratio. I've been, and, and again, you're going to get sick of me sort of saying this experimentation, but I've been really fascinated. One of the classes I taught, uh, I had 115 students. And so what first thing I want to say is I don't think there's any one size fits all. So that's the first thing, because depending on what it is you're trying to get across, it's not going to work yeah. if you have 115 students necessarily. Mm. So I, um, I experimented with discussion forums. Um, I held informal coffee chats with no agenda. Back to your comment about just, I just want to connect. Yeah. I just want to chat. I want to see, I want to, you know, I just want to belong, you know, for an hour. You know, and we chat about life, the universe, and everything because there was kind of no, no agenda. But what I found really interesting was, you know, in these online discussion forums, how fantastic the conversation actually was. Things that I had never heard in any of the classes that I'd taught before. And, you know, we always talk about the, the introverts and the people who are, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so, and there's a lot of kind of, you know, inclusion literature out there. And so I, um, that was just a, such a bright spot in all of this. And I, it has just caused me to think about some of the assumptions that I've made about, about the quality of conversation and where it might occur. So anyways, that's the only other thing I wanted to add. But I love the cons conservation idea. You mentioned that word belong, and there's a question here from a, an upper year undergraduate named Muhei. And she asks, I think the mental health problem is one of the most challenging things during the pandemic. People are, are experiencing anxiety and isolation. As an international student, I also feel a loss of a sense of belonging. What is your idea about reconstructing the community after the pandemic? How has the pandemic changed or given you new thoughts about how we relate with time and space? Do you want me to weigh in? Yeah, you go first. <laughs> so I think the um, so I think the the mental health thing is is very real, obviously, and for students, back to time and and dislocation. It used, and the rhythm, right, and the muscle memory, you just get up, you go to class, here's your schedule, you had to study, you know, in off hours, you had, exam you had all of that stuff. It was pretty straightforward. And one of the, again, amongst the many revelatory moments I've had with sort of this remote education is that students have lost that rhythm. Mm -hmm. and that sense of time. So one of the things that I did, and I, I'm actually, I want to know what other people are doing. I created a study guide. 
and with the online modules, even though I thought I was super explicit about the order in which things needed to be done and how long each one might take and all of that, the, the feedback was like, we're, we're lost. We need to know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where we should be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and back to that positive affirmation. Right. So I put a study guide together and I was like, okay, by November the 11th. You want to have done X. You should have done the following. And oh, by the way, we'll pop online in a coffee chat and we'll just make sure that everything is, is a-okay. So I, I think that's one part of it. And, and uh, I want to give you time because I know we're probably gonna, going to run out. But the whole notion of community. Um, in the business school, we've been trying a bunch of things. So we've um, used Slack on our programs for the non-academic. Just hop on a platform mm. to talk about your cats, your dogs, the yeah. cooking. the, yeah. And that is not driven by us. That is simply, here's a place. Yeah. You may be using WhatsApp or, or something else, right. but here's, a, here's another place to create a channel so that you can build your own community. Are, are students doing that? Because we, you know, we've tried that with CUFA. Like, here's our Zoom, let's have drinks. And, no, no. And this is, and, and so no again, it's, it's uh, a bit of an oxymoron plan serendipity, but you, prov you provide the venue. Right, but if people come, that's And they question. do, oh. and, and so I think the key is, is that it wasn't really driven by us, because they don't really want to hear from us. It's driven by the students, and mm -hmm. so they, they create the structure, and they create the, the channels within which they want to connect as a community, mm -hmm. so you have all these micro communities mm -hmm. as part of this. Yeah, because the hop on a Zoom, who wants to be on Zoom again for something social? Not many people. <laughs> Having spent so, sorry, all day. I, I'm, I'm not following. So Slack is a different platform? Yeah, Slack is a completely different platform. It's a I mean, its sole purpose is networking. Um, but not networking in the sense of uh, I meet you because I... Want to right. not, not transactional networking. Not transactional. But this, is, this is a hangout network, and you've got all kinds of other platforms like Hop In, Hop On. Anyways, we just we just chose uh, Slack, and and I don't have the statistics, but it would blow your mind in terms of huh, the that's interesting because because it just it has you know using Zoom, it just hasn't worked for Cufa as far as I can tell. We've made all kinds of offers to people like you know have drinks, whatever, and nobody, nobody wants to do it, including me. <laughs> yeah, this is the online version of the quarter conversations, the lunchroom conversations. Right, but what makes it, sorry, this is a conversation for after. Afterwards, I'm, just... I'm happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a question from a library employee and a cultural studies graduate student. So he's doing a couple things. There's a lot of people with multiple personalities, multiple identities on campus. His name's Paul Clifford, and he asks, my question comes from a staff point of view. Before COVID, Queens appeared to work on an old school punch the clock kind of model in which staff were monitored, not in terms of how much work they got done, um, but if they were present, if they were at their desks. What kind of remote works what, sorry, let me say that again. What kind of remote work works, do you think? And what kind doesn't work? 
That one's for you, Elspeth, because... Man, punch- I, I could go off on a tangent. Yeah, the, the whole... Pu- pu- punching the clock is, you know, <laughs> no. I mean, Paul is talking about his job at the library, and um, that's structured so differently than faculty work, I just wouldn't dare to speak to it. I think it goes back to... Um, and I was going to use the word old, ancient... I don't know, but this notion from the old time and motion studies that yeah, were it's done. it's the industrial era. Yeah, it's the industrial era and the it's Taylorism. from my perspective. No, no, no. No, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious, but it's interesting that, that that's so pervasive. Yeah. And, and again, the fact that you're sitting at your desk, I mean, we talk about a culture of FaceTime. Like, how has that ever been associated, unless it was Taylor back in, Taylorism back in the Industrial Revolution, how has that ever been linked to productivity? It hasn't. And especially these days, do you really want someone mm-hmm. to be sitting at their desk? There's zero evidence that that's better than getting out there and spending an hour and a half walking around and talking to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, in some organizations, uh, and I won't name the consulting company, Um, this pervasive culture of FaceTime, sit in your office, be seen to be sit in your office, really worked against community, collaboration, Mm -hmm. idea generation, Mm -hmm. everything else. So they actually had to put a policy in place where you could no longer eat lunch by yourself in your office. Mm -hmm. You could eat lunch in somebody else's office, just not by yourself. Which, which I think drives the point home that uh, if that's all you're doing, I don't know if I'm really answering the question, but, but it, it seems to be a somewhat older view of tracking whether people are doing good things or not. I think there are other ways to check in on that. The, the, the one thing I'd say to Paul, you know, since part of his question is what kind of work works uh, in this monitored way and what doesn't. And probably none of it works in the monitored way. But maybe the distinction is uh, if it's collaborative work, you want at least some of it to take place in person so that you actually are moving bodies through space and people are encountering the discipline of other bodies, right? You know, yeah. like just the, the, the courtesies and the, the you know, the, the, the things that I'm sure neuroscience can tell you all about, but, you know, to I, me, just the difference that it makes that we're sitting here face to face and not talking on Zoom. Yeah. Right? I think it's, um, you know, back to his question, the answer is always it depends on the job. Like sometimes you have to, it's like eight hours and it's a customer service type role or whatever, it, it, it is what it is. But for a lot of other work that now happens by staff on campus, um, there's no requirement to do that in a certain period of time. And I think more generally, uh, what, what we're finding through all of this COVID work from home stuff is that people can be incredibly productive, but not necessarily at nine to five. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but but you know what the students point out is, if they don't have nine to five, then 
it bleeds into absolutely everything. Yeah. And their weekends, their, you know, and, and for me, that was actually what I hated about uh, real jobs and have loved about academia yeah. is, you know, like I, uh, what, what I hated about real jobs was the sense that there was a difference between work and life. All I wanted was a vocation, uh, you know, a, a work that filled my being mm -hmm. from one side to another. And I've never really got the life-work balance thing because work is life to me. Yeah. Not, you know, not in the sense that I love to do little work, but my work, I'm working when I'm reading Middlemarch or yes. King Lear and like, how did I get so lucky? So I don't, you know, I mean, that's why I feel like I um, can't speak meaningfully to Paul's question yeah. because for me that saturation is satisfying but obviously yeah. for many of the students it's quite deleterious to their mental health i just add one more thing i think it's the i i'm trying to read between the lines in the question and i i think it's this notion of of nine to five as as the way it's just always been like why is that the case why isn't it nine to twelve and you know, four to eight. Well, or working to task rather than Correct. to the clock. Old, yeah. yeah, which is the old, you know, tell me what you need me to achieve. And <laughs> What does and, success look like yeah. and get out of my way? Yeah, yeah, And the yeah. creativity. And, creati and, and, and that's pretty much the norm in academic life. Well, we're, right? we're lucky. Absolutely. Yeah. We're yeah. really, we're really lucky right. in that respect. It's, I could never go back to a nine to five job. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Me neither. This is from Kira Kidd, and she's another upper year undergraduate student. She asks, as our social relations and workloads have shifted, in many cases, it has led to a slower paced life and more time to dedicate to work and study. I wonder if this shift in pace will enlighten the university faculty, reminding them of the need to decolonize courses, slowing their pace a little, and focusing on more holistic approaches to improve the overall health and well-being of students, their mind, um, their bodies, spirits, and emotions, as well as their overall learning experience when everything picks, back, picks up again. Would you agree that this time is one to reflect on the issues with our educational systems and address them rather than to jump back to business as usual? Well, I think it's interesting, this notion of a slower pace. I don't think you would find any faculty member anywhere at the moment yeah, I, who, would, who would say that this is a slower pace. I mean, I've never worked yeah. so hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in my life, to be honest, uh, in terms of trying, yeah. Yeah. just as the student's question uh, indicated, you know, trying to um, trying to get it all right um, going forward. So I think that uh, it, it's just an interesting assumption at the core of that question that yeah. somehow there's a whole bunch of spare time available it's it's the exact opposite yeah, I, don't know I, you, I, I found the question quite bewildering because from a faculty perspective this has been a nightmare of work intensification and that you know I, I think 
the decolonizing response of the university would have been the one that I was talking about earlier, which is to admit that it sucks, you know, to, to actually find tolerance for, you know, for nature having thrown something in your path and that you've just got to take the blow, you know, that that's... Or even, I, even in involving students more in what's actually happening. Because again, I think the, the question is a really great one um, because it, at its core again, I think it speaks to a disconnect between students and faculty with respect to what, what is actually going on. Well, except that if you read something like the uh, Arts and Science uh, Undergraduate Society's report, the speed up the, or the intensification that faculty have experienced seems to be something the students have experienced because in our efforts to be effectively asynchronous, etc., all the professors came up with more exercises and True. more feedback and yeah. need to post things online and all these requirements. So, you know, where before you turned up to class, now you have to perform. And mm -hmm. so, so it's just, you know, I'd be actually quite interested to talk to Kira about where that, yeah, it's just a very interesting question because it's an outlier as a description of the experience of you know, of of time in the university, which is not one of work de-intensification. One of the things I've experienced throughout COVID is when I get to meet people, I find it very difficult to close the conversation. I find a ways <laughs> to make it go on longer. Um, so how about answering just one more question? One more question. Sure. Tackle one more. Elizabeth can go first this time. A little bit different. Um, focused on the future. It's another undergraduate student, Julia Bucala. And she asks, as university students, we have all been adjusting to the differences and developments in our academic lives. However, however, many of us are reaching the ends of our academic careers and will be facing the world outside of Queen's where there are many uncertainties, i.e. the job market. How can we prepare to face this new chapter in our lives during COVID? Okay, I'll weigh in. I think, um, I, I think the world will continue to be highly uncertain. Um, for some time, you know, even without the global pandemic, there's a lot happening. So social movements, technology shifts, demographics, climate change, climate change, like, you know, it's the, there is a lot going on. And so I think, which, which means there, um, there are always opportunities, but I think the ability to actually become very comfortable with uncertainty, ambiguity, complexity, and all of those things is really the ticket going forward. Like that has to become okay, as opposed to I finish, I get the job that's gonna set me on my career track forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's gonna happen. So I- Yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen either. 
and uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that, that the way to prepare is to reflect on whether ambiguity and anxiety is something to be tolerated. You know, we, there, there's, I mean, this is like opening another tangent, but the discourse around mental health is a little troubling to me because it medicalizes something that we may just want to call suffering or discomfort. And it's like, you know, life does that for you. And anxiety is not an illness. It's a thing that you feel in response to uh, uncertainty. And I think that probably our students are suffering in ways that they, you know, in ways that may be more intense than in the past. But suffering isn't illness. And their lives, I mean, and this is the hopeful thing I'd like to say to the students, which is your lives, from my perspective, you know, as somebody uh, approaching the end of a, of a career, are long. And these are really disrupted times, but they are interesting in all the complicated meanings of that. And if you tolerate the ambiguity and the suffering, you will be larger than if you get the job you expected and have plan A run the way you thought it was going to. There is nothing that diminishes you the way successful plan A does. Yeah, I mean, it's a time for, um, I love the way you phrased it, not tolerating, but I think really embracing. Well, it's hard to embrace discomfort. Like, I don't <laughs> embrace discomfort, but I do, you know, like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a yoga thing, right? You notice it, you name it. Ugh, I don't like it. I acknowledge that I don't like it. But you're still doing it. <laughs> but you're still, you know, it's like it's still part of life. And, and it's, a, you know, like a, a, anything else. There is a point where you do want to acknowledge that something has verged into pathology, that it's more than you can bear, that it's put you in a, you know, in a, a spiral of entropy or something. But... You know, but there's I, a good word, entropy. Yeah, Maybe you know, that's you're, the best you're just, word to you're, describe you're, this moment in you're, time. You're just losing. It's yeah. more than you can work with. You know, and I don't know how you know which you've got. Whether you're, whether you need attention from somebody else, or you just need to give it attention. Well, I think the clock is striking. Well, it will in a few minutes, and we're actually going to have to leave the library. <laughs> Thank you both so much for this generous sharing of your time. Thank you to Elizabeth Hansen and to Elspeth Murray, who have joined us here. It's just before noon on a beautiful sunny day. And thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Laura and Elspeth. Thank you.
You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marianne Mozedich. Thank you for listening, and please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series.